I invite you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is a book in the New Testament, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. So if you open your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, keep going to the right. You'll eventually come to a little book of Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 15, and uh, we will put the verses on the screen as well. And there are Bibles in the racks in front of you, and you're welcome to take that as your gift if you don't own a Bible. But let's look at this passage together. Colossians 1 chapter 15. If some of you are familiar uh, with stories that have backstories, uh, many times you don't really know the full story until you understand what was going on that you didn't see. The Christmas story is a story that we're all very familiar with. Maybe we're too familiar with it. What I want to do today is look at the backstory of the Christmas story, and it is told by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, uh, beginning in verse 15. So let's listen to this together. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross this is the word of the Lord we started a brand new series last week called arrival And this is a series that we'll be making our way through uh, during the Advent series. And we're going to look at the aspects of Jesus' coming. Not just the historic aspect, uh, the story in Bethlehem, that's certainly an important part. But also the fact that he still comes to us today as believers. Many of us in this room have had an experience with Jesus. And we would say he is very real to us. He came to us in a very real way. But also the promise that he left us with that he would Come back. Now, last week we started the series off, and it was a holiday weekend, so I know a lot of people were either out or if you were here, you still had a tryptophan hangover. So you might not remember anything I said, but, but last week we talked about the idea of longings, longings, desires, that it's a universal condition. That everybody has inside of us, no matter how old you are, how young, how much money, how little money, what culture you're from, your background, everybody's got desires and longings. It's especially true this time of year among the youngest among us as they're like anxious, counting down for Christmas. There's an anticipation, an expectation, a longing for Christmas. And what we said is because that's a universal condition, what is clear is that God hardwired the human heart to have longings. And so we asked ourselves, why did God give us longings? What is the purpose of longings? We said the purpose of longing is actually not to be satisfied. The purpose of every longing that you've ever had is ultimately to remind you that this world is not your home. That there is never anything that is going to finally and fully satisfy the longings of your heart. Think about this. The best meal you've ever had was not your last meal. It did not end your eating for all times. You were hungry again just a few hours later, right? 
Everything you've ever done that you think has been satisfied has only been satisfied temporarily. Longings are to point us to something else. They're to point us that this world isn't our home. The problem with our longings is that we try to medicate them with things in this world. We try to medicate it with money. We try to medicate it with power, position, fame, recognition, sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. We try to medicate the deepest longings of our hearts. And when we do that, we fail to understand the true purpose of our longing is pointing us to something outside of this world. And then we said the promise of the longing is this, that God would fulfill every longing of our heart in Christ Jesus. That Jesus came He came to fulfill the deepest need of the human heart. That he comes and he meets us in our longings today. And that he will ultimately come in return. So each week, this week and the next two weeks, we're going to look at the different aspects of Jesus' arrival. This morning I want us to look in particular at the fact that he came. That he came. This ancient Christmas story. And I want to ask some basic questions. And if you're here today and you're not a believer or you've heard the Christmas story, you're familiar with it, but you don't know really what it means, I am glad that you came today of all days. Because we are going to take a look behind the curtain at the Christmas story and we're going to ask ourselves some very basic questions, but they're fundamental to the Christian belief. Who was he? If he came, who is he? The second question we're going to ask is, is why did he come? Why did he do it? And then the third question, and maybe the most important of the three, is what does it mean for us today? So let's take a look at these questions. If you're a note taker, there's a place on the back of your bulletin for you to jot down a few of these things. And we're going to look at this passage and try to answer these from from these verses in Colossians chapter 1. So the first thing is who he is. Who he is. Colossians tells us right off the bat, verse 15, and then it's repeated in verse 19, that he is the image of of the invisible God. Now that seems pretty basic, right? That he is the manifestation, he is the image, he is what you see of God. That this God who was distant and far away, unknowable, unsearchable, he made himself known to us, he took on flesh and we have seen him. The the gospel writer John, who was with Jesus for all those years, he said, he said, the word became flesh. The word was this idea of this unknowable God, this unknowable knowledge, that it became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. He says later that we've touched him, we've heard him with our own ears, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he came to be with us. Listen to what Paul says later in another passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, that Jesus Being in very nature God. Don't miss that. That Jesus is in his very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he is the image of the invisible God. He is in very nature God. And in verse 19 of Colossians 1, we read, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, for some of you, if you are not a Christian, you may have had this idea in your mind that Christians worship three gods, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, The theological term for that is called the Trinity. Don't ask me to explain it. People have been trying for thousands of years to explain it. It is a mystery, but I can tell you some things it's not, and some things that may help you grasp this idea. First of all, if you think of a pie, some people think of God as a pie, and the pie has three sections, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is not at all what the Trinity is. Because what this passage tells us is that Jesus is fully God. God is fully Jesus. That it is 
God has made himself known to us in three persons. He has manifested himself to us. God the Father, God the Creator, God the Son took on flesh, and God the Holy Spirit. That he has come and made himself known to us in the form of Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says next about about Jesus. That he is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Now, it's important to understand what this is not saying. This is not saying that he is part of creation because it says that he was over it. He was the firstborn over all of it. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on and, and says that for by him all things were created. So everything that was created was created by him. But wait, I thought he was the firstborn of creation. Well, hold on. We'll get back to that in a minute. He goes on and says, in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is, what's those next words? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you think that Paul wants us to understand that it's all things? I mean, he's like, all things, he created all things, all things are held together in him, he was before all things, all things, all things, all things. Jesus is separate from that. He's separate from creation. So what does it mean that he was the firstborn? Well, I think the ancient listeners would have understood when they were reading this what Paul was talking about. Paul was really talking about the ancient rites of the firstborn. That that if you were living in this culture, you would know, as unfair as it seems to us today, that the firstborn male in any family inherited everything. And you just hoped that you had a good relationship with your oldest brother. Because he got it all. He got all the wealth. He got all the power, he got all the authority, he got all the privilege and the prestige. Everything from the Father was given to the firstborn. What Paul is saying is that when God took on flesh and came and dwelt among us, he is like the firstborn over all creation. That everything that is God is Jesus. All the power, all the authority, everything is owned by him. That he holds it all together. Not that he is part of creation, but he is outside of it. And he goes on and he says something else about who he is. He says that he is the head of the church, verse 18. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. And he is the head of the church. Now, we can't spend a lot of time here, but, but just, just know this. Southside Baptist Church is not my church. And it's not your church either. It is Jesus' church. That he's the head of his church. Now we're called to steward it. We're called to serve it. We're called to love it. We're called to be a part of it. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And then he says a fourth thing about who he is. In verse 18 he says he is the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn from among the dead. Now don't don't miss this. Because this is where Paul is kind of bringing it all together. Everybody with me? Look up here. Everybody look up here. So, So catch what he's saying. That he is the image of the invisible God, the creator of everything, whom you could not see and could not know. He was in the beginning with God, John says. The word, when God spoke and said, let there be light, the word, Jesus was there. This is why in the Genesis account, it says, let us make man in our image that Jesus was before all those things were created but we couldn't see the word we couldn't see God we couldn't know God and so what does God do God takes on flesh God puts on skin comes into time and space 
so that we might know him. Everything that was created was created by him and for him. And in him it holds together. And what happens when he steps into time and space? The very creation that he, came, that he created that was scarred and damaged and broken by sin, Jesus steps into it and he himself dies. He himself makes himself subject to death because not only was he God, but he took on flesh and was fully flesh. Listen to what Paul goes on to say in the rest of Philippians 2. But made himself, remember, he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, that he came and lived, and the author of life, the one who created everything, was killed by that which he made. That we, who have been created by him, are responsible for his death. You think, well, I didn't do that. That was 2,000 years ago. But according to the Bible, the very fact that we have sinned, the very fact that we fall short of God's glory, made it necessary for Jesus to come. Why? Just so that he could die? No, because look what it says in Acts 10, 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. See, this is what it means, that he's the firstborn from among the dead. You see, we were dying. We are still in the process of dying We don't know how to live. We have no life apart from him. It's as if the oxygen had been cut off and we're gasping for breath. And Jesus steps into our reality and he gives us his life, which leads him to die. But then by God's power, God raises him from the dead. And the whole thing starts to reverse. That he begins to restore life to that which was broken. This is who he is. This is is more than the story of just a baby born in a barn with some shepherds and some angels. There is a backstory here that's critical that we understand and know about his first coming. But why did he come? Why did he come? Well, it might be kind of obvious, but we should say it anyway. According to verse 15 and verse 19, he came to reveal the Father. He came to show us what God is like. Jesus had a conversation with his disciples one time um, and, and he was talking and, and, and he, was, he had lost them which wasn't unusual they, they, you know, he, they don't understand what he's saying they're, they're trying to keep up and finally Philip one of his disciples just out of utter frustration just said oh Jesus enough already if you would just show us God just show us the Father that would be enough for us enough with all these stories and these illustrations and I don't know what it I don't even know what a talent is Jesus just show us God please some of you felt that way like you just come to church like, could you just please show me God? And Jesus takes a deep breath and he says, Philip, have I been with you all this time and still you don't know? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And in that statement, Jesus made the clearest, most profound proclamation of who he was and what he came to do. That he is God in flesh. He came to show us a God that we could not see on our own. But it's better than even that. Because according to verse 16 through 20, he also came to restore creation. This thing that he had created in the beginning... 
that everything that was created through him, for him, everything that was held together by him, it began to unravel when sin entered the picture. It began to fall apart. Some of you know what that means. Because you've lived a life that somewhere it started to unravel. And you try to track it back and figure out where was that moment. What was that decision that I made? When when the wheels just started to come off the bus. When I realized that I no longer had control over my life. When I realized that there was no way that I could save my own marriage. When there was no way that I could rescue my son or my daughter. When was it that you track it back and you realize it was there? That's not just your story. The reality is that's everybody's story in the room. And you can look across the room and see somebody else and see their nice family and they look good. They look like they've got it all together. Let me tell you a secret. They don't have it all together. And neither does anybody else. I don't have it all together. Because it's part of the human condition that we began to unravel. Life began to unravel. Creation began to unravel with the introduction of sin. And what was sin? Sin was just simply our desire to do things our way. That's all. Come on. That's you, right? That's me. And not just one time in the distant past. That's me almost every day. That this is what happened. And so it began to unravel. And so what did God do? God stepped into time and space and he took it upon himself to restore what was broken. To recreate what he had initially created and said it was good. That he began the process of restoring it. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Some of you need to memorize that verse. And you need to hold on to that. And you need to claim that promise that Jesus is making all things new. Because that's what he came to do to restore it. And third, what did he come to do? He came to reconcile us to God. To reconcile us to God. Look what it says back in Colossians Uh, chapter 1 at the end there it says for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven by making peace by the blood of his cross that it wasn't just that he came and lived a sinless life and taught some really great things and performed some miracles but it was the fact that he was willing to die that brought peace with God that he came to reconcile us to him. 1 Peter 2, 24 says this, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's past tense. You go, wait a minute. You don't understand right now. The craving for my addiction is so strong, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do when I leave here. You don't understand right now. I'm contemplating how I'm going to leave my spouse. You don't understand right now I'm thinking about those things. But what you don't understand is what Jesus came to do. You don't understand that he came to restore. He came to reconcile you to God. And through him, through him, all things can be made new. And you might not see it right now, but that's the promise. That's what he came to do. It's what he's come to do in your life. And he will ultimately fulfill it in his return, that he is reconciling all things. It's interesting to me that in the Bible, every time that God shows up in the Old Testament, it's dramatic. There's fire and smoke and earthquakes and all these miraculous signs and wonders and, you know, people are 
taking their shoes off and falling on their faces and bushes are blowing up and seas are splitting in two and walls around cities are falling down and oh, there's God, you know, there's God, there's God, there's God. But when God himself chose to take, take on flesh and come and live among us, when he actually broke into history, not just through a sign and a miracle, he did it by coming in the form of a helpless baby. That he made himself the most vulnerable thing he could possibly make himself. In the most quiet and obscure way he could. To the fact that most people would miss it. In fact, most people did miss it. He came in humility and he came in weakness. He became weak and died. And through his weakness, we can be reconciled to God. And through the power of his resurrection, he is making all things new. He's bringing it all back together. So what does it mean? What does it mean? He is the image of the invisible God. He came to reveal God to us and to reconcile us to God. So what does it mean? Listen, if this is true, and I'm just going to, for those of you who, who have doubts and questions, and there are more of you in the room than would admit it. But let's just for a second step back and ask ourselves a question. If this is true, if God really stepped into time and space, If God really was born in flesh in the form of a baby over 2,000 years ago in an obscure village, if he really did reveal himself to the person that we know of as Jesus Christ, if that is true, I know some of you don't believe that, but just, just track with me for a minute. If that is true, what would it mean? Well, first of all, I think it would mean that we must reorder our lives. That we would have to completely completely reprioritize everything we would require a complete reorder of everything listen to what it said in verse 18 it said so that in everything he might have preeminence in everything you cannot have anything on your own terms and still have Jesus as preeminent in your life you can't have anything that, is, that ranks above him. If there is one thing you would have above him, then he is not preeminent in your life. And that's what he came to be over all creation. Remember what he said? That all things hold together in him. All things are subject to him. That he is supreme over all things. But if you, in your own heart and life, if there is anything about your life that you would say, no, I'm going to hold that back for myself then you need to reorder your life. You've got to reorder your life in such a way that he is first. You will never know him as the supreme one until he is supreme over everything else in your life. Everything else is number two and below. He must be first in all things. If your job comes before your relationship with Jesus, he is not preeminent in your life. If your marriage Your relationship with your children comes before Jesus. He is not supreme in your life. If your pursuit of wealth and money and power and influence and recognition, if that is first in your life, he is not Lord of your life. There's a great quote. I don't even know who said it. It's been requoted so many times. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. If this is true, it requires a complete reordering of our lives. And if we reorder our lives, the second thing we'd have to do is that we must relinquish control. Ooh, now I'm stepping on toes, right? Come on. 
We like to control things, don't we? At least 50% of us do. We like to control things. We like things on our terms. But if he truly is who he said he was, and if he really does have first place in our life, we have to relinquish all control. What is one thing in your life right now that you can't imagine giving up? What is one thing right now that you would never, ever, ever say that you could give up or that you would relinquish? Because if you can answer that question, then you have to ask yourself, is that the thing that is supreme in my life? Is it your career? Is it your retirement? What is it? Because until until that thing is placed under Christ, you can't say that he is preeminent in your life. He's preeminent over, over all creation, but you are fighting against the very thing that he came to do. You are opposed to his lordship of your life, but of all creation. Because if you get a carve out, I get one too, right? And if we get carve outs, so do they. And pretty, pretty soon, Jesus is just an ornament on the Christmas tree of our life and nothing more than that. We just sprinkle a little, little Jesus in our life. We show up to church, put some money in the plate, volunteer every now and then if we're absolutely desperate and feel like we did something bad last weekend. And somehow we offer an appeasement to God as if he is satisfied with that. When he says, no, you don't understand. You are nothing without me. Your whole life is held together because of me. The missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love that quote. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep. Start thinking about that for a minute. I I don't just mean for the next six months what you think you can keep. I'm talking about the rest of your life. Like what is it that you think you're going to keep past this life? He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus told it this way in two parables. He said there was a man who found a pearl of great price and he knew it was so valuable, he went out and sold everything else he had so that he could buy that pearl. Another man, there was a treasure buried in a field and he went and sold everything he had so that he could buy the field so that he could have the treasure. Is Jesus the treasure of your heart and life? Is Jesus the pearl of great price? And you would say, I would sacrifice everything for him. I would sacrifice everything to gain him, to have him. Paul, the apostle Paul said, I consider all things garbage that I may have him. That nothing else I possess even comes close to the treasure that I found in Jesus Christ. Is he that kind of treasure in your heart, in your life? Because If, listen, I know it's a big if, I know it's a big if, but if it's true, if everything that we say at Christmas is true and God took on flesh and came and dwelled among us and he lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death and rose victorious over sin, death in the grave, if that story is true, then what other option do we have? Why would we pursue anything else? See, this is the real message of Christmas. It's not that Jesus came to be comfortable. The real message of Christmas is that God himself gave up all the glories of heaven, all the comforts, all the privilege, all the power, all the control. He made himself vulnerable. Not just vulnerable like any baby born in the United States today, but vulnerable. He was born to a refugee country in an oppressive government at a time in history where there's no medical care. He was laid in a barn He made himself vulnerable. He made himself uncomfortable. He was sacrificial. 
not just on the cross, but from the very beginning. The sacrifice of God did not begin on Calvary. It began in Bethlehem when he laid aside all the glories of heaven and came to earth. And we take the celebration of Christmas and we want chestnuts roasting on an open fire. We want warm, comfy feelings of our family and our friends. Now listen, I'm not opposed to those things. I just want us to understand that's not really what Christmas is about. That Christmas is about a God who sacrifices everything so that we could have life. And in turn, he says, now will you sacrifice everything so that you can have life in me? And that's what Christmas is about. I know what the rest of the world may think. And Black Friday and highest sales time of the year. I get all that. But come on, Christians... Shouldn't we be demonstrating something different at Christmas time? Shouldn't we be demonstrating the sacrifice God made when he came? Shouldn't we be entering into the dark places, the uncomfortable places? Shouldn't we be willing to set aside the comforts and the glory and the power and the privilege? At Christmas time, shouldn't that be what we do? Because it's what he did. And Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. And we think about that when we think about a 30-year-old Jesus itinerant preacher walking around dusty roads, follow Jesus. But what about following him in the manger of sacrifice? What about following him in the discomfort of the stable? See, that's what Christmas is about. Now, if you're still with me, you're thinking, well, that sounds awful. That does not sound like what I want to hear on the first Sunday of Advent. But listen to the third thing of what it means. We must reorder our lives, we must relinquish control, but finally, we can rejoice in him. We can rejoice in him. Listen to what the angels said to the shepherds when they showed up. Luke 2, verse 10. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. John said to his disciples in John chapter, or Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. You think, well, all that you've really talked about is sacrificing and giving up, being willing to put everything second to Jesus. But that, don't you see, that's where the joy is. That's where the joy comes from. When he is truly the treasure of your life, when he is truly the pearl of great price, when he is what you're pursuing, What can you lose in this life that compares? And so you suffer a hurricane. And your house is flooded and all your contents are destroyed. Well, come on. I know it's inconvenient. But you weren't going to take that stuff with you you anyway, right? You get a doctor's report. It wasn't a good report. Well, The reality is you're not going to live forever anyway, right? I mean, do you understand what it does? It puts everything else in perspective. I'm not being cold and callous. I know the suffering that there is in this world. I understand that it's real and I understand you feel it. But the bigger that Jesus becomes in your life, the more preeminent, the more supreme he is, the smaller everything else becomes in comparison. And suddenly we find, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sacrifice, we find joy. Because we find him. And he is what satisfies fully and completely the longing of every heart. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you see? Do you see the comparison 
That the consequences of being willing to sacrifice, the consequences of being willing to give away is joy that comes in return. Now, I'm not, this is not a pitch for an offering. Because, I'll be honest, because that doesn't even come close. This is a complete reordering of your life. This is a saying, nothing else in my life is more important than him. That there is nothing that I possess, there is no relationship that I have that would not be worth sacrificing in order to gain him. That he is the prize and finding in him the joy that we seek. See, if we really believe that he came, if we really believed the story, it would make a radical difference in our lives today. It would change us. So let me, just, let me just ask you, what difference would it make if it were true? What difference would it make if it were true? Not just the fact that a baby was born in Bethlehem to refugee parents and that some wise men from the east showed up to bring gifts and somehow in the church we've celebrated that for thousands of years. Not that part, not that part. But the part about God taking on flesh and coming to reveal himself to us, what if that part were true? What difference would it make in your life? How would this Christmas be different for you? How would you reorder your life? What do you need to relinquish in order for him to be supreme in your heart? For some of you, maybe this Christmas, it's just an issue of realizing, I have no joy We didn't sing it today, but we're going to sing it before the end of the season. You've probably already heard it on the radio. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And you hear those words and you're like, where is it? Maybe you've been looking in the wrong place. Because my guess is you're not going to find it under a tree. You're going to find it in a Savior who sacrificed everything for you and who invites you to sacrifice everything that you might gain him going to ask you to bow your heads and and close your eyes in just a a few minutes um, we're going to take up our offering and when we do there is a communication card that Scott referenced earlier I'm going to ask you to prepare to put that in the offering plate as it comes but but right now I just wonder if if any of you who are here today would say you know what I understand the message and it is my desire to make Jesus first in my life Maybe for the first time you've, you've reached the point where you see that he is the pearl of great price. There is no sacrifice you could make that would not be worth gaining him. I just wonder if today, if you would just write an A on your communication card, put a circle around it, put an A, put a circle around it. If you are here today and you recognize, you hear the story, but you just don't know if it's true, put a B and just put a circle around it. And if you're here today, And like me and like many of us, you recognize the truth of it, but maybe you don't always live out the meaning of it. But this Christmas, you want to, like me, try to do a better job of living out the meaning of it. Would you just put a C? So an A, an A, meaning I'm ready to make Jesus number one in my life for the first time. B, I really don't know if I believe this story yet. C, I believe it and I'm trying to reorder my life. Would you just mark that on your communication card? Fold it up. Place it in the offering plate when it comes by in just a little bit. We're going to pray for you. 
If you want to speak with one of us, you can mark it on there. Hey, I'd like to talk to a, a, a pastor, one of the pastors, and we'll follow up with you about that. Otherwise, we're just going to pray for you. That's all. Father, we invite you in these moments to come to us just as you came, to reveal yourself as you revealed yourself in history. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who are struggling with the truth of the Christmas story, the truth of the incarnation, that you, by your, the power of your spirit, would just reveal truth to them. Lord, you don't need me to do it. You don't need this church to do it. I just pray that they would find a still place this Christmas to consider the truth of this story and what it would mean for them. For those of us who hear this story, who believe this story, Lord, help us to be recommitted to doing anything it takes to gain the treasure of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, for anyone who is here today who is willing for the first time to say, I, Lord, want to seek after Jesus as the treasure, place him above all things, Lord, I pray that you will meet them right here, right now. And Father, that by your grace and through the power of your life, you will begin to restore, to renew, and to reconcile them. Lord, thank you for the message of Christmas and the beauty of the story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.